today we're beginning a new sermon series on Christology. And, um, you know, this morning as I was going to begin that sermon series, my original plan was to talk about how the Old Testament points to the New Testament. Now, if Christology is a new term for you, Christology refers to the branch of Christian theology, which is just another word for the study of God, and specifically the study of Jesus. And so that's what Christology is all about. It's just the study of Jesus. It seeks to understand who Jesus is, what he taught, what his role is in salvation of humanity. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to swim in those waters, so to say, and we're going to look at some of the basics of Christology. Like, so for example, next week, Breton is going to talk about how Jesus was fully God and fully man, which is really confusing, but it's also very important to the gospel message at large. And so like I said, today I was going to talk about how the Old Testament points to the New Testament as a sort of a signpost, and I was going to talk about the meaning of biblical prophecy and typology and, and how the Old Testament and the New Testament aren't at odds, but they're actually um, partners. And I'm still going to do that another week, but yesterday I just couldn't shake this feeling that I was supposed to maybe talk about something else um, still related to Christology. And I kept asking God, you know, well, what is it? Like, what am I, what are you trying to say to me? Why do I feel like that's not what I'm supposed to talk about tomorrow? And so what I really felt like God kept bringing me back to was to just remind God's people about the simple gospel, the simple gospel. You know, and the simple gospel is a funny thing to talk about when you're about to go do a series on Christology, because as we get into some of these concepts, we realize that sometimes things don't feel too simple, do they? Matter of fact, I remember when I got out of seminary, I had just finished my master's in divinity. I don't know why they call it that, master's of divinity, right? Sounds like you should be, you know, rolling with He-Man or something like that. But I finished my master's of divinity, and I felt like if you asked me at that point in time to explain the gospel, there was so much stuff in my brain that I would have a hard time really boiling it down to anything simple that a human being could understand. Um, because that's kind of what happens. The more you learn, the more complicated things become. And that's not to say that studying is wrong. It's just a natural result of those things. But the gospel is meant to be understood by a child, right? The gospel should be able to be understood by our kids the gospel is a love story. The gospel is for uneducated people. It's not, you know, reserved for the academic elite. But sometimes when we make it too complicated, it can feel that way. So as Dave mentioned, on Sunday mornings, there's a group of people who have been walking through the book of Galatians. I think there's about 15 people or so who are in that group right now. And last week, they sent the class home asking them to summarize the gospel in just two or three sentences. That was the homework, or one of the homework assignments that they gave them was summarize the gospel in two or three sentences. And I thought, man, that's a really great exercise. Now, Paul summarized the gospel on a few occasions, as we see throughout the New Testament. Most famously, he did so in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8, this is what we see Paul say. He says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Well, not anymore, Paul. Though some have fallen asleep. In other words, they're dead. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, meaning that he came to faith much after those appearances. He appeared also to me on the road to Damascus, which you can read about in Acts chapter 9. And so essentially there Paul is saying this. He's saying Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised, and then he appeared to a bunch of people to prove it. That was Paul's summary of what was most important, first importance of this gospel. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he summarizes the gospel even more simplistically. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's how he summarized the gospel. Now, it's hard to improve on those descriptions. Indeed, I would say that anything I'm going to say isn't going to improve on what the Holy Spirit has already written through these people who wrote the Bible. And every other way that we would explain it is just a different way of approaching it. And that's important because as we look in the New Testament, what you realize is that there was never one way that Peter always shared the gospel like this. Or there wasn't some, you know, script that Paul had memorized. Paul preaches the gospel differently in Acts chapter 13 to a bunch of Jews. And then he preaches in Acts 17 to a bunch of philosophers. He preaches entirely differently because Paul realizes that different things are going to resonate with different people. But when, um, when Dave and Jess mentioned to me that that was the question they had posed to their Galatians class, what I thought for my own personal summary was that Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven, that he was raised from the dead so we could live forever, and then he sent us his Holy Spirit so we could follow him as king. You guys have probably heard me say that before, but truth be told, I didn't write it. I stole it from a children's book. And so there you know where I find most of my reading. But that is the simple gospel, right? But, you know, with all of these different explanations, says Jesus died for our sins, or Jesus died to save us. He came, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You see, there's a lot of background knowledge, which if you were a Jew or if you had come from a different walk of life, there's a lot of assumptions that are unstated. You know, save me from my sins. Well, what does that mean? What do I need saving from? Why do I need saving? That he died for our sins? Okay. What does that mean? And so when we talk about the simple gospel, there's some background knowledge which maybe we assume our culture understands, which it doesn't understand anymore. Who is Jesus? What is the gospel? Why is it good news? These are important. These are ever-relevant questions for us. And they're shrouded in a fog of confusion. Now, this confusion, I want to underscore, is not from the Bible. The Bible is extremely clear about all of these things. But the confusion comes from our culture. It comes from our denominations. It comes from our politics. It comes from the Internet. And it comes from a million other sources that are always trying to yell at us about who this Jesus really is. 
See, some will say that Jesus is just an example to follow. Indeed, Jesus is an example to follow, but is that who Jesus is? Some will say that he was a fraud. Some will say that he was a charlatan. Islam claims he was a prophet, but not the prophet. Judaism claims he was a false prophet and a false teacher. Buddhism says that he is an enlightened teacher, right? And so when you hear someone who they say they're Christian and they start talking about how Jesus was like more aware and he opened up his neural pathways and all these kinds of things, you realize this is new age syncretism. Some Hindus view Jesus as an enlightened being or even an avatar of a God. But who is Jesus really? And so in Matthew 16, that's actually the exact question that Jesus engages or uses to engage his people. He talks to his disciples. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is Jesus' most preferred description for himself. It's a reference to Daniel 9, and it has to do with this one who's going to come, who's going to receive all authority, who's going to rule over every nation, over every power, over every stronghold, okay? And so Jesus says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, about, he's talking about himself, who do people say that I am? And some say you're John the Baptist, reincarnated. Others say that you're Elijah, reincarnated. Or Jeremiah, reincarnated. If you see a theme here, need some fresh ideas. Or one of the prophets. And he said to them, okay, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? See, and that's the ultimate question that sits with each of us in this room is who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a teacher? Is he an example? Is he a, you know, a total fraud and a phony? Or is he something else? And this is what Peter responds with. Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You are the Christ. You know, Christ is not Jesus' last name, by the way. I know that that's one of those things. We just always use his name in connection with the word Christ. And so I think lots of people grow up thinking that's like Jesus' last name. Was Jesus Christ, that's his name. But no, Christ is a title. It comes from the Greek Christos. It comes from the Hebrew Meshaik, which is anointed or Messiah. And so as a title, this word Christ has a lot of rich history that it has to carry along with it. See, in the Old Testament, God would anoint people, like they pour oil on them, um, as a sign of anointing, anointing people for a particular path, task or, their, or a purpose. And so God would pour, or the people would pour oil on someone as a representative, and God would anoint people with his power to accomplish his purposes and to fulfill whatever the task was that he gave. So, for example, certain men were anointed with the Holy Spirit in order to build and construct the tabernacle. Samson was anointed as a rescuer of Israel when they were oppressed by the Philistines. David was anointed as king of Israel. There's lots of other anointings throughout the Old Testament. And so realize that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title 
that is pointing to who Jesus is and what he came to do. He is the promised one endowed with the power of God to fulfill the purposes of God and reign as king. Does that make sense? And so the question then is this, what does Jesus think about all of this anointing and the fact that he's the Christ, that he is the promised one? Well, he tells us in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so Jesus is the Christ. He's the anointed one, the promised one, the rescuer, the Messiah, and he's here to rescue the lame. He's here to rescue the sick, the broken, the oppressed, the blind, and to announce the beginning or the advent of a good period of time for which everyone has been waiting. But not the way that the contemporaries of his day and age thought that he would, and not the way so many think he will today either. See, they wanted a political savior who would rescue them from Rome. Today, people still want a political savior. They think Jesus has more to say about policy on both sides of the aisle than he has to say about sin, hell, judgment, and the holiness of God. Then they wanted food in their bellies and they wanted shelter over their heads. And today, many still see Jesus primarily as a savior for the downtrodden. That we just need to keep focusing on lifting people out of poverty. Then many saw him as a physician. If they could just make it to whatever town he was going to be at, he would heal their crippled son or he would heal their blind daughter. And they thought, Jesus is this physician that I can go to. And even today, many still treat Jesus in the same way, kind of as a genie, hoping that if they rub the lamp, then they repeat the magic words, they can get their three wishes of health, wealth, and prosperity. Now, Jesus did come to rescue, and Jesus did come to heal, and Jesus did come to lift people up, and Jesus did come for all of those things. None of that is debated, but the ultimate question is rescue from what? Save from what? Defeat who? Reign over who? Reign over what? And the answer to these questions are what makes the difference between biblical Christianity and liberal Christianity. Because one finds its reality in a much larger biblical narrative, and one finds its reality in whatever the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age is. Does that make sense? I know, it's trying to make it simple, right? <laughs> Which brings me back to the simple gospel question. What is the simple gospel? Well, all the things we said before, but there's one more thing One more way that I heard it explained, which resonates with my heart, because deep down, I'm a major dork, all right? Maybe not too deep. It might be surface deep. Deep down, I'm I'm quite a nerd, and so there's a simple gospel explanation, which I like, because it's embedded in every DNA of our stories, of our films, of the books that we read, 
What is the gospel? What is the good news? I'm going to tell you. The hero kills the dragon and rescues the girl. That's the gospel. The hero kills the dragon and rescues his bride. Listen, the world is cursed. It's broken. It's vicious. There's beauty in it. But you don't need to look too far to see the brokenness. It's on the news. It's behind every closed doors. It's in our schools. It's in our lives. It's the curse of sin. Now, it's a curse that we didn't ask for, but it's a curse that was forced upon us, in a sense, years and years ago when we fell in Adam. It began in Genesis chapter 3 with a serpent. That's how it all began. It began in Genesis chapter 3 with a serpent, a rebellious angel who wanted to supplant God. And when that didn't work, he decided to toy with God's most precious creation, humanity. And with cunning and with lies, the serpent deceived Eve and Adam into disobeying God. Because that's what serpents do in the scriptures. In the scriptures, serpents always deceive. But immediately following that first deception, God makes a promise. Actually, immediately following that first deception, God makes a prophecy. It's the first prophecy in the scriptures, and it it summarizes and points to the entirety of the gospel message, although it's veiled in mystery. And this is what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity or hatred between you, serpent, and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There it is. That's the first prophecy of the Bible, and it's all about a promised child that would kill the dragon. The hero will crush his head. That's how Paul says it in Romans 16. The promise of the rescue surrounds the crushing of the serpent's head. Now, the motif of snakes and serpents continues in the Bible, but our English translates it another way, dragon. As author and theologian Andy Nacelli explains, this is a quote, serpent is an umbrella term that includes both snakes and dragons. It's a big category. Snakes and dragons are kinds of serpents. Now, a serpent has two strategies in the Bible, deceive and devour. And as a general rule of thumb, the form a serpent takes in the Bible depends on its strategy. When a serpent in scripture attempts to deceive, it's a snake. When a serpent attempts to devour, it's a dragon. Snakes deceive, dragons devour. Snakes tempt and lie, dragons attack and murder. Snakes backstab, dragons assault. And in the story of the Bible, the serpent and his offspring craftily alternate between deceiving and devouring. The hero's mission, kill the dragon, get the girl. The story never gets old. If the dragon is the enemy, that means we are the princess, locked in a tower. Sorry to burst your bubble bros. But we are not Rambo in this story. We are the princess in the tower. And then that means that Jesus is the knight in shining armor. And the reason the Son of God appeared, according to 1 John 3.18, was to destroy the works of the devil. See, but in this story, Jesus leaves his shining armor at home 
and instead he dons the likeness of sinful flesh so he can be camouflaged in enemy territory. When he's around 30 years old, he's baptized by John the Baptist, his cousin, and that marks the beginning of the Holy Spirit anointing him publicly. And this is when his public ministry begins, anointed by the Spirit of God to fulfill the task of God. The hero is now ready to go. Immediately, he begins warfare against the serpent, against that serpent of old Satan, and against his offspring, his evil henchmen. What does he do? He immediately casts out demons, heals the sick, forgives sin, undoing what the enemy has done. It's like the hero begins on the outskirts of the empire, and he is slowly fighting his way towards the evil king's twisted throne. Jesus, whose name harkens back to Joshua, the commander of the Lord's army who led a conquest of the promised land, now has a spiritual conquest that he is living out as he declares all-out war on the authorities, powers, and dominions of this age. Which, by the way, when you see that in your Bible, it talks about authorities, powers, and dominions. You see it throughout the New Testament. It always refers to Satan's kingdom. It doesn't, it's not talking about like, you know, whatever, some country. It's talking about the kingdom of Satan. And so the battle in Jerusalem culminates during the Passover feast, which is looking back to another type of conquest that God did in the past when he declared war on the gods of Egypt. And Jesus knows what he has to do in order to defeat the great serpent of old. Jesus knows exactly how he has to defeat the devil. He knows that there is only one way and it will come at a great cost. He knows that if he's going to save the princess the bride, the church, then he's going to need to sacrifice himself. Because the only way that sin-shackled, sin-infected, sin-dead people destined for wrath can go free is if he takes their shackles, he takes their sin, he takes their death instead. And so that's what he does. He offers himself up on the cross in a great exchange, his life for your life, and the hero dies to rescue the bride. And you have to wonder if in that moment the enemy thought he won. But that was the hero's strategy all along. He enters into death to metaphorically rip off the gates of hell and then proves that death has no hold on him by rising from the dead three days later. His resurrection catalyzes new life, new humanity, new kingdom because the hero won, the hero is victorious, and now our hero has been bestowed with a name that is higher than any other name in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth. The hero has all authority in heaven and on earth, but it is not yet time to enforce his reign fully. So the hero departs. Why? To go and get his house ready for his bride. The princess, the rescued ones, the people of God, the church. See, the Christ, the anointed Messiah, the rescuer, that's what Christ means. The Christ hero has defeated the dragon. The work is done. The shackles are broken. But now it is up to us to go and tell every person, great and small, about what he has done. That we are sent with the good news. Do not fear. The dragon is dead. Our hero, the dragon slayer, the Christ, 
Jesus has defeated our greatest enemy. Yes, the serpent bruised his heel, but our hero crushed his head. You see, and for I know there's at least half of you in this room, you're thinking this is the weirdest way to explain the gospel on the planet. But hear me, I don't want to be offensive. This is the gospel. And we've dumbed it down to real world garbage, which isn't even important. The gospel is not about you. The gospel is about God reclaiming his people for himself and destroying his enemies in the unseen world once and for all. And we are pawns and beneficiaries of it. That's why the great mystery of God is that we get to be folded into his spiritual family, although we are but dust. This is the gospel. The gospel is that there is a grand story unfolding around you that has been for a long time and will continue into eternity, and it's much bigger than where you're supposed to live next year. The gospel is huge. It's eternal. It's spiritual. And it has implications for our lives in this physical world as well. The dragon knows his time is brief. That's what Scotty read in the beginning of our service. He's defeated, but in his arrogance, there's a part of him that still thinks he can win. So like a cornered, injured animal, he's lashing out at anyone and everyone. He's seeking to deceive and destroy as many as possible before the hero finally comes back, like it says in Revelation, on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth because when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords returns, he doesn't come meek and mild riding on a donkey. He comes on a horse looking to make someone bleed. See, Jesus Christ died to save sinners. That's what he did. That's why he did it. But save from what? From the clutches of sin and eternal death inherited from the dragon of old. See, the hero came to rescue the bride by defeating the dragon through his death and resurrection. There are few types of people in this room. There's a few types of people in this room who haven't responded to this message. And I would suggest you fall in one of these categories. There's people who think they're beyond rescue. And we're here to tell you today that no sin is too great, no shame is too great, no laundry list is too long because Jesus' blood is sufficient. There's people here who think they don't need to be rescued. They think that they're doing just fine. And that camp is actually identical to the third camp, which is people who want to rescue themselves. This is the Pharisees. You say, I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not even religious. These are the Pharisees. Jesus, describing the Pharisees, said they thought their righteousness came from themselves. And so they were condescending towards other people. If you don't think you need to be rescued, it's not because you're better than the next guy. It's because your understanding of God is too small. No amount of good work, kind words, will allow you to break your own chains. And then there's people who don't want to be rescued. Matter of fact, John 3.19 says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, it's impossible to be rescued if you don't hate your own sin. 
You need to be rescued. You need a hero. And the evidence of your need for rescue is your sin, and it's the sin in the world around you. But 1 John tells us that who, 1 John 3, 8 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. In other words, you're captive. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. That's why he came. You need to be rescued, and Jesus is the hero to do it. See, when Jesus is bestowed with all authority on heaven and in earth, do you know what that means? That means the Christ, the promised one, the son of man, the king. He is, he has authority, rather, over the earth, but also over the heavens because the serpent has been defeated. And this is what makes the gospel simple. What do you need to do to be rescued? Or Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 6, verse 29. When someone says to him, what works do we have to do? And Jesus says, the work of God that is required is this, to believe. To believe. To believe in the one he has sent. See, Jesus has done the work as the rescuer. The dragon is bruised and will be ultimately defeated at the end of the story. And what does God require of you? To believe. To believe in what the world will say is a fairy tale. To believe that there's a story that is much bigger than all of this, all of us, that has been unfolding and will continue to unfold. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Believe that he did what he said he did. Believe that he will do what he says he will do. Believe, and in believing, you have eternal life. Believe and be rescued. Believe. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that, um, that your spirit would show us your beauty, the beauty of your word, the beauty of your gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you rescued us. You didn't have to. The word of God says that we were your enemies. But while we were enemies, you came and died to call us your friends. And more than your friends, you adopt us into your family. You call us your bride. The scriptures begin with a wedding with Adam and Eve, and they end with a wedding at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the second Adam will be married to his bride, his people. That's us, if we are in Christ. We thank you that we get to be a part of this story in an otherwise dull and drudgerous life. Thank you that we are part of the greatest story ever told. In your name we pray, amen.